0: and welcome to this reading of the Sioux City Journal. This is for Saturday, March 11th, 2023 AD. This is your reader at the microphone filling in for this Saturday. My name is Andrew Halp. Uh, as I brought to you the Sioux City Journal yesterday and back again today, we had some people uh, call in sick. So uh, we're going to take a look at some of these headlines before we get into the forecast. Another U.S. hiring search. 311,000 jobs despite Fed rate hikes. Written by Christopher Rugeber. That's good news. Esports e- Invitational, Morningside hosts first tournament. Yeah, how about that? All the uh, Everyone's gathering up there. Uh, looks like they're uh, having one of those uh, long-term gamer get-togethers. People are there with the headphones and the computers. That's becoming quite a thing now. Uh, why she voted no. Megan Jones was one of six Republicans to oppose transgender legislation. So these stories and more on this reading of the Sioux City Journal here on Iris, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind and print disabled. Before we go any further, let's take a check of our forecast for Sioux City and the northwest Iowa area for Saturday in the next few days. Well, we are seeing some uh, light and freezing rain as I'm recording this here. Expect, uh, and that's during the 10 o'clock hour in the morning, it's going to warm up enough today to melt some of that off, but still expect uh, snow and sleet. And then snow throughout the day. It, chance of snow uh, between three and five o'clock today. So that'd be going on right now. Well, high near thirty-six degrees. Those winds from the southeast. Five to 15 miles per hour, becoming southwest in the afternoon, gusting as high as 20 miles per hour. A chance of precipitation is 100%. Total daytime snow and sleet accumulation of around two inches. So be careful if you're out and about again for your Saturday. A high of 36 degrees and snow for tonight. Mostly cloudy conditions. Low around 21. West northwest winds, five to 10 miles per hour, increasing to up to 15 miles per hour after midnight and gusting as high as 30 miles per hour. A low of 21 for your overnight. Sunday, tomorrow, increasing clouds with a high near 30 degrees and blustery conditions. Winds from the northwest gusting as high as 35 miles per hour. Sunday night, patchy blowing snow between 7 p.m. and 2 a.m. into Monday morning. Mostly cloudy with a low around 17 Monday, you can expect partly sunny skies, a high near 29 and gusty, up to 25 miles per hour from the north and northwest. Monday night, mostly clear, a low around 15. Tuesday, mostly sunny, a high near 46 and breezy. Looking through the week here, partly sunny for your Wednesday, a high near 61. Thursday, a chance of rain and snow. Again, mostly cloudy, a high near 40. And at St. Patrick's Day next Friday, mostly sunny, a high near 32 and breezy. Well, have some green beer that'll warm you up. How about that? But again, for your Saturday, expect snow and sleet. Uh, Snow going on right now as this is airing across the network. A high of 36 degrees for Sioux City. Taking a look at our first story here, we'll bring you this job story here in this reading of the Sioux City Journal for Saturday. Another U.S. hiring surge, 311,000 jobs despite Fed rate hikes. This is written by Christopher Rugeber, Dateline, Washington. America's employers added a substantial 311,000 jobs in February. Fewer than January's huge gain, but enough to keep pressure on the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates aggressively to fight inflation. The unemployment rate rose to 3.6% from a 53-year low of 3.4% as more Americans began searching for work, but not all of them found jobs. Friday's report from the government made clear that the nation's job market remains healthy with many employers still eager to hire. Fed Chair Jerome Powell told Congress this week that the Fed would likely ratchet up its rate hikes if signs continue to point to a robust economy and persistently high inflation. A strong job market typically leads businesses to raise pay and then pass their higher labor costs on to customers through higher prices. February's sizable job growth shows that hiring continues us to strengthen this year after easing in late 2022 from October through December the average monthly job gain was 284,000 that surged to 351,000 for the past 3 months economists pointed to other data in Friday's report that suggested that job market while still hot may be better balancing employers need for workers and the supply of unemployed people Many people came off the sidelines to seek work, making it easier for businesses to fill millions of open jobs. The proportion of Americans who either have a job or are looking for one rose for three straight months to 62.5%, the highest level since COVID-19 struck three years ago, but still below the pre-pandemic level of 63.3%. With more potential hires to choose from, employers seem under less pressure now to dangle higher pay to attract or retain workers. Average wage growth slowed in February, rising just 0.2% to $33.09, the smallest monthly increase in a year. Year-over-year, though, hourly pay is up 4.6 percent above the pre-pandemic trend, but down from average annual gains above 5 percent last year. What the Fed may decide to do about interest rates when it meets later this month remains uncertain. The Fed's decision will rest in part on its assessment of Friday's jobs data, but more heavily on next Tuesday's report on consumer prices in February. Last month, the government's report on January inflation raised alarms by showing that consumer prices reaccelerated on a month-to-month basis. Ahead of the February jobs data, many economists said they thought the Fed would announce a substantial half-point increase in its key short-term interest rate rather than a quarter-point hike as it did in its meeting in February. Friday's more moderate hiring and wage figures led some analysts to suggest the central bank may not need to move so aggressively at this month's meeting. There is clear signs of cooling when you dig deeper into the numbers, said Mike Scordell's head of economics at Truist, a bank. I think it makes the case for the Fed to say we'll still hike rates, but we're not going to do a half-point hike. When the Fed tightens credit, it typically leads to higher rates on mortgages, auto loans, credit card borrowing, and many business loans. Its rate hikes can cool spending and inflation, but also raise the risk of a recession. Even for workers who receive substantial pay raises, high inflation remains a burden. Consumer prices rose 6.4% in January compared with a year ago, driven up by the costs of food, clothing, and rents, among other items. Frustrated by wages that aren't keeping up with inflation, Rodney Colbert, a cook at the Las Vegas Convention Center, joined a strike Thursday by the Culinary Workers Union to demand better pay and benefits. Colbert said his hourly pay was 4 to $5 less than what cooks were paid at casinos on the Las Vegas Strip. I'll average approximately 28 hours a week, and that's not enough, Colbert said. Just in the past two years, my rent has gone up $400. That's a lot. Nationally, nearly all of last month's hiring occurred in mostly lower-paid service industries, with a category that includes restaurants, bars, hotels, and entertainment, adding 105,000 jobs. It's second straight month of strong gains. Warmer than usual, weather likely allowed more building projects to continue, with construction companies adding 24,000 jobs. Retailers added about 50,000 jobs, healthcare providers 63,000. Local and state governments, some flush with stimulus programs cash, added 46,000 jobs. Much of that growth reflects Americans increasingly venturing out to shop, eat out, travel, and attend entertainment events. Activities that were largely restricted during the height of the pandemic We've created more jobs in two years than any administration has created in the first four years, Joe Biden said Friday about the employment report. It means our economic plan is working. Economists note, however, that the very strength of the job market is itself contributing to the high inflation that continues to pressure millions of households. In February, in contrast to the solid hiring in the services sector, manufacturers cut 4,000 jobs. A sector that includes technology and communications workers shed 25,000 jobs, its third straight month of losses. It is a sign that some of the announced layoffs in the economy's tech sector are captured in the government's data. Our next front page story, electronics sports athletes. Esports Invitational, and the headline photo shows Thane Anderson playing Valorant for Briarcliff University during Morningside University's first ever Esports Invitational competition at the Seaboard Triumph Foods Expo Center in Sioux City. That happened on Friday. Approximately 30 teams from 17 schools compete in four different games. Morningside hosts, first tournament. That's written by... Earl Horlick, Dateline Sioux City, it is Lane Polson's pre-tournament ritual to turn off his computer and listen to nothing but tunes. The mellower, the better. I need to relax before I get ready for competition. The Morningside University junior explained, is Polson a star athlete on the Mustang men's basketball team? No, the graphic design major is playing on the college's eSports team. Short for electronic sports, Esports is a form of competition involving video games, and Morningside is hosting its first two-day home invitational tournament at the Seaboard Triumph Foods Expo Center. Competition play started Friday. Morningside and 16 other college esports teams will continue play from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. Saturday. At 3 p.m., the top four teams from the games as Rocket League, Valorant, Overwatch 2 and League of Legends will be seeded for semi-final action. The finals for all four games will start at 6 p.m. Wait, what? Can college kids playing video games really be considered an athletic activity? Absolutely, if you ask Jared Amundsen. A former place kicker with the Mustangs football team, he is now the head coach of the eSports team. Esports athletes are just as competitive and train just as hard as those in other sports, Amundsen said. In addition, esports help fill a gap between groups. There are students who aren't necessarily into singing and theater or they may not want to try out for a particular sport, Amundsen said. Esports gives students a chance to meet with other people with a similar interest while giving them the experience of being on a team. Amundsen, a 2019 Morningside graduate, got involved in eSports when he was a student. He said, there has been steady growth in the university's National Association of Collegiate eSports Sanctioned Program. I want to build up the credibility of our team, he said. I want students to say, I play eSports the same way they say, I play basketball or I play football. The Mustangs eSports team was one of the reasons that Polson decided to go to Morningside. I was part of Morningside's bowling team as well as the eSports team, he said. I discovered I preferred eSports over bowling. While Polson is an avid Overwatch player, computer science senior Landon Christensen leans toward League of Legends. I like League of Legends because the game is always changing, Christensen said. You could never be complacent about anything with eSports. This is what makes eSports especially challenging, Amundsen said. Once you get down to it, the game of basketball boils down to getting the ball and throwing it through a hoop, he said. With esports, there's a lot of strategy involved. Having an in-person tournament, whether you're battling an opponent who is across the table instead of on a computer screen, will take esports to the next level, which is why Amundsen has been so bullish on Morningside's in-person tournament. That has been my primary goal for our esports team to earn the same level of respect as other athletic teams, he said. Having some of the best eSports athletes competing under one roof will show that the sport is here to stay. All right, moving on to our final front page story here, the third of three. Why she voted no. Megan Jones was one of six Republicans to oppose transgender legislation. And the headline photo for this by Caleb McCullough, shows her during a session in the Iowa legislature on Thursday. Dateline, Des Moines, Iowa. Story by Jared McNett. When the Iowa House of Representatives voted Wednesday afternoon on a bill that would ban gender-affirming care for minors, 57 Republicans voted in favor of Senate File 538. 34 Iowa House Democrats voted against the bill, which was overseen by Representative Stephen Holt, Republican of Denison. That group of nearly three dozen was joined by six GOP representatives. Megan Jones, a six-term legislator from Sioux Rapids, was one of the six. She said her position didn't change much throughout the bill's path to passage. I heard from a lot of constituents who said, look, I don't necessarily understand all of this. I'm not a doctor. I don't get it. But I don't think the state should be stopping hormonal medical care while someone's receiving that treatment. Under the bill's guidelines, minors currently receiving medical treatment, such as puberty blockers, hormone therapies, or surgeries, would have 180 days to discontinue care. Support. Republican legislators who supported the bill, such as Holt, have said its intent is to protect children from medical care and treatments based on uncertain science. Our children deserve the time to grow into themselves, to find themselves to go through phases without medical interventions that are unproven in their efficacy, Holt said Wednesday. Studies like a 2018 one from the American Academy of Pediatrics do acknowledge there can be long-term side effects from hormonal treatments and that more research is necessary. But medical professionals have also said evidence-based gender-affirming care for transgender children and adolescents is medically, un- is medically necessary and appropriate. The University of Iowa LGBTQ clinic in Iowa City treated 211 trans children in the past 12 months, according to the Des Moines Register. Jones said constituents have told her actual projection for transgender children would include medical care when called for. They don't support going after this community who is made up of a bunch of already marginalized children who would have the weight of the world on their shoulders, who are going to school every day facing difficult circumstances, Jones said. Now that's the time to support these kids and not target them and question the treatments that they're receiving. Debate over the bill in Des Moines the past week produced protests from LGBTQ activists as well as counter-protests by figures from groups such as Moms for Liberty. Despite the hotly contested legislation, Jones said she didn't feel a lot of heat from fellow party members or residents in her district, which includes large parts of Clay and Benavista counties. I received an overwhelming amount of support for being a no on the bill, she said. Jones then explained she's been told the state has bigger priorities. A lot of people that I've reached out to aren't necessarily engaged or involved in these conversations or this community. And what they said was, why do we have to do something here? Our state has bigger priorities. People need greater access to medical services. People don't have dental care. Yet here we are fighting over an incredibly small group of kids who, with their doctors and with their parents, are receiving a medical treatment that, while we might not understand, that's the path they've chosen. Why are we going after them? We've got bigger fish to fry. Choice. Before the bill's passage in the House of Representatives, Jones attempted to introduce an amendment to allow for gender-affirming care for minors if they have parental permission. I thought that was a fair and genuine amendment. It failed on a procedural vote. I think it had made it through the procedural barrier. There would uh, be, have been a tougher conversation for folks because people don't want to vote against parental choice, Jones said. When explaining his vote against the bill, Bondurant and GOP Representative Brian Lose said it is counter to parental choice, which has been a common theme of the 2023 legislative session. Jones said she shares an understanding with her fellow Iowans who worry that taking away parental choice and banning care for minors could hurt kids. The legislature is coming in and literally intervening with a kid's health care and their current treatment path. And so that's a big problem for a lot of people, she said. In two months of the session, the Iowa legislature has already seen multiple high-profile bills concerning children as well as education. Joan said she couldn't fully explain why 2023 has been the year for these debates. Maybe it's because there are 64 members in the House, so we have a supermajority, and I think people can finally take on some of the more radical proposals that have been options in the years past, she said. But I don't really have a good answer for that one. As it relates specifically to gender-affirming care for minors, Jones did say such legislation shouldn't make folks from the LGBTQ plus community think they're not welcome in Iowa. We do appreciate their presence, And they are humans, just like the rest of us. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. And far be it from the Iowa legislature to tell these people that they can't live, work, and grow a wonderful family. Okay. I guess she calls herself a Republican. Moving on now to page A2. Brief. Iowa Politics Podcast, a post-funnel deadline. On the Friday episode of the On Iowa Politics podcast in the Iowa legislature, the follow-up to the first funnel, which was just a whirlwind, the House and Senate passed a ban on gender-affirming care for minors. Governor Kim Reynolds made her pick of the next director of the State Education Department, and this weekend is the starting gun to the 2024 Republican Iowa caucuses. On Iowa Politics is a weekly news and analysis podcast that aims to recreate the kinds of conversations that happen when you get political reporters from across Iowa together after the day's deadlines have been met. This week's show is hosted by the Gazette's Des Moines Bureau Chief Aaron Murphy and features Gazette Deputy Chief Tom Barton, Lee Des Moines Bureau Chief Caleb McAuliffe, Sarah Watson of the Quad Cities Times, Jared McNett of the Sioux City Journal, and Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. The show was produced by Bailey Shikwon, C-I-C-H-O-N, and the music heard on the podcast is courtesy of Copperhead and Tone DeBoss. So if you want to take a listen to that, um, you're going to have to look it up because they give a QR code to listen to it here. Creepy. Okay, moving on to more news. Uh, That's everything on page A2 because most of it is follow-on stories from page 1. We're going to move on to page A4 now. Gallery in the Sky returns for second year. Dateline Sioux City. The story by Earl Horlick. When Jessica Hammond saw the skywalk on 4th and 5th Streets between Nebraska and Pierce, she pictured it as being an indoor 360-degree fish tank. All she needed was time plus enough paint to cover 66 feet of blank canvas. Hammond, who creates large-scale mural art under the name Brutal Doodles, is one of the artists... Whose work will be represented at the second annual Gallery in the Sky Skywalk Art Festival? This year's festival, taking place from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. April 1st, will feature the oversized Aquatic Wonderland mural by Hammond and fellow artist Kitty Hart, aka Kitty Kitty Bang Bang, with the assistance of East High School art students. In addition, many murals by area artists such as uh, Mikkel Zishka, Chello Sherman, Cherie Lee Johnson and Daniel Kestinita will be painted on the walls of the downtown Skywalk system. Hammond said Gallery in the Sky was an offshoot from the Alley Art Festival, which she Hart and Vanguard Arts Director Brent Shockton created five years ago in order to beautify alleyways while encouraging downtown foot traffic. Gallery in the Sky does the same thing, except it encourages people to walk along the skywalk when the weather is still cold outside, Stockton said. The art festival will also feature a juried art show, art vendor booths, hardline coffee, baked goods and refreshments, musical buskers, and a kid-friendly drawing area. Stockton is especially pleased with the reception the Skywalk Festival has gained. We believe the gallery in the skywalk In the sky draws attention to the skywalks and their purpose, while also adding beautiful murals and interest for the Skywalkers, he said. The photo here shows artist artist Jessica Hammond, aka The Brutal Doodles, providing a sneak preview of Aquatic Wonderland, her mural. It's a 66-foot mural that she and fellow muralist Kitty Hart, aka Kitty Kitty Bang Bang, for the second annual gallery in the Sky Skywalk Art Festival. Anyway, that'll take place April 1st in downtown. Next up, Ron DeSantis. Everybody's talking about him. I was at the newsroom at my other job, and the big talk is Ron DeSantis declaring a run for the presidency. So he draws hundreds in his first Iowa trip, and in the photo here, it shows Kim Reynolds in the background, along with other people, as he's speaking in Davenport. The story by Sarah Watson. And by the way, everyone, I've heard. Uh, through the vine, that Ron DeSantis is a very nice person. He's very personable. He's not stuffy like Mitt Romney. He's a Mr. Chill, very personable. So good reports on Ron DeSantis, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. This story by Sarah Watson. Hundreds of people waited in line at a casino in Davenport Friday morning to hear what Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a possible contender for the GOP's presidential nomination, had to say. It was his first trip to Iowa, which is the first state in the presidential nominating calendar for Republicans. Although DeSantis hasn't yet announced a run for the nomination, early polling shows him as the only potential candidate polling with double-digit support behind President Donald Trump. In his speech at the Rhythm City Casino in Davenport, DeSantis ticked off a list of Republican accomplishments in Florida, prohibiting mask and vaccine mandates, banning the teaching of gender identity and sexual orientation in elementary schools, restricting diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts at public universities, restricting public investments in companies that focus on environmental, social, and government investment strategies and others. Our state is where woke goes to die, DeSantis said to a standing ovation. He was introduced by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, drawing parallels between the two state's politics. Both governors won their first full terms in 2018 and resisted pandemic-era mandates and closures in 2020. Both won with double-digit margins in their 2022 re-election campaigns. With absolutely no playbook, we both focused on protecting the lives and livelihoods and the freedom of our citizens, Reynolds said. DeSantis greeted the audience by complimenting Reynolds. It's so great to be here with America's Governor Kim Reynolds, he said. He said he speaks with people who moved to Florida from other states, and many expressed displeasure about how their home Democratic controlled states are run. But when I meet Iowans in Florida, they're happy. They love their state because it's well run, DeSantis said. It's one of the best run states in the country. He and Reynolds acknowledged Republican governors can be competitive. Iowa Republicans passed bills in recent weeks that would ban gender affirming care and prohibit instruction of gender identity and sexual orientation. K-6. through At the start of the session, Iowa lawmakers passed a bill that would allow parents to use taxpayer per-pupil funds to send their children to private schools. Florida lawmakers are considering a bill that would open its private school program to all families, regardless of income. DeSantis' speech to Iowa Republicans comes as the Florida legislature began its 60-day session this week. I always tell my legislators, you watch Iowa. Do not let them get ahead of us on any of this stuff, DeSantis said. So, we, we've got our legislature and in session now, so buckle up. The next 60 days should be fun in Florida. When he won a narrow election in 2018, DeSantis said he was advised not to rock the boat, but he said he went on the offensive instead and it paid off. The advice I was getting at the time was, okay, it's a divided state, very close election. Trim your sails, don't rock the boat, you know, just get in there and kind of be a little passive. And I rejected that advice, he said. My view was, I may have received 50% of the vote, but I earned 100% of the executive power, and I intend to use that to be able to advance the best interests of the people in Florida to fulfill my campaign promises. Attendees were given free copies of DeSantis' book, The Courage to be Free, Florida's Blueprint for America's Revival. He'll make a second stop in Des Moines later on Friday, which already happened. He came to WHO and talked to Simon Conway. His visit comes just as Des Moines, Des Moines Register MediaCom Iowa poll release Friday shows DeSantis comparable With Donald Trump in favorability ratings, about 42% of Iowa Republicans view DeSantis as very favorable, and about 44% of the Iowa Republicans view Trump on the same measure. And we are getting close, everyone. We can fit something else in here real quick, though. We're about to that halfway point. Stocks tumble as Wall Street wonders what will break next. Oh, for goodness sakes. Don't freak out, everyone, but we'll read this to you anyway. It's written by Stan Choe, La- Choe. Last name spelled C-H-O-E. There's a name. Dateline, New York. Fear rattled Wall Street and stocks tumbled Friday on worries about what's next to break under the weight of rising interest rates following the biggest U.S. bank failure in nearly 15 years. The S&P 500 dropped 1.4% to cap its worst week since September, That's despite a highly anticipated report on Friday showing pay raises for workers are slowing and other signals Wall Street wants to see of cooling pressure on inflation. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 345 points, or 1.1%, while the Nasdaq Composite sank 1.8%. Some of the market's sharpest drops again came from the financial industry, where stocks tanked for a second day. Regulators took over Silicon Valley Bank, In a surprise midday move after shares of its parent company, SVB Financial, plunged more than 60% this week. The company, which served the industry surrounding the startup companies, was trying to raise cash to relieve a crunch. Analysts said it was a relatively unique situation, but it still led to concerns a broader banking crisis could erupt. Friday's struggles came amid what strategists in a BOFA Global research report called the crashy vibes of March. Markets have been twitchy on worries that high inflation is proving difficult to subdue, which could force the Federal Reserve to reaccelerate its hikes to interest rates. Hey, maybe you should stop printing all that money. Well, anyway. Moving on now because it's the halfway point here in this reading of the Sioux City Journal. Andrew Hop with you here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Reminding you that all material heard on, here on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print-disabled, our audience. If you have any comments or concerns on this or any other IRIS program, well, feel free to give us a call at 515-243-6833. 515-243-6833 or one 404 4747 one 404 4747 That's our line. And that's not a call-in line. We're not going to put you on the air. We shouldn't, uh, but, uh, yeah, you can call in. get signed up if you haven't already. We can get you a program schedule. Let's take a look now at today's obituaries here in the Saturday edition of the Sioux City Journal. Dennis L. Denny Clayton, Rossville, Kansas, formerly of Sioux City, age 79, Passed away Thursday, March the 2, 2nd, 2023, at his home in Rossville after a short, brave battle with cancer. Services will be at 11 a.m. on Saturday, April 15th, at the Rossville Christian Church in Rossville, where there will be a visitation from 10 a.m. until service time. Arrangements are with the Piper Funeral Home in Saint Mary, Kansas. To leave online condolences, please go to www.piperfuneralhome.com. Memorial contributions may be made to the American Cancer Society and sent in care of Piper Funeral Home at 714 Maple Street, St. Mary, Kansas, 66536. Again, that's for Dennis L. Denny Clayton, Rossville, Kansas. Next up is John A. Jorgensen, our second and final obituary of Meckling, South Dakota. Age 74, John A. Jorgensen died Thursday, March the 9, 2023, Services are Friday, March 17th at 2 p.m. at the Bergen Lutheran Church in Meckling. Burial will be following services at the Bergen Evergreen Cemetery. Visitation is March 16th from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Hanson Funeral Home in Vermilion, South Dakota. All right, some other brief news here on page A6. Robert Blake, actor acquitted in wife's killing, dies at age 89. Dateline, Los Angeles. Robert Blake, the Emmy award-winning performer who went from acclaim for his acting to notoriety when he was tried and acquitted in the killing of his wife, died Thursday at age 89. A statement released on behalf of his niece, Noreen Austin, said Blake died from heart disease surrounded by family at home in Los Angeles. Blake, star of the 1970s TV show Beretta, had once Hope for a comeback, but he never recovered from the long ordeal that began with the shooting death of his wife, Bonnie Lee Bakley, outside a Studio City restaurant May 4, 2001. The story of their strange marriage, the child it produced, and its violent end was a Hollywood tragedy played out in court. Once hailed as among the finest actors of his generation, Blake became better known as the defendant in a real-life murder trial, a story more bizarre than any in which he acted. In a 2002 interview with the Associated Press while he was jailed awaiting trial, he bemoaned the change in his status with his fans nationwide. It hurt It hurt because America is the only family I had. He was adamant that he did not kill his wife and a jury ultimately acquitted him. But a civil jury found him liable for her death and ordered him to pay Bakley's family $30 million, a judgment that sent him into bankruptcy. It was an injure... Inmonious finale for a life lived in the spotlight from childhood. As a youngster, he starred in the Our Gang comedies and acted in a movie classic, The Treasure of Sierra Madre. As an adult, he was praised for his portrayal of real-life murderer Perry Smith in the movie Truman Capote of Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. His career peaked with the 1975 through 78 TV cop series Beretta. He starred as a detective who carried a pet cockatoo on his shoulder and was fond of disguises. It was typical of his specialty, portraying tough guys with soft hearts and its signature line, don't do the crime if you can't do the time, he often was quoted as saying. Blake won a 1975 Emmy for his portrayal of Tony Beretta, although behind the scenes, the show was racked with disputes or by disputes involving the temperamental star. He gained a reputation as one of Hollywood's finest actors, but one of the most difficult to work with. In 1993, Blake won another Emmy as the title character in Judgment Day, the John List story, portraying a soft-spoken, church-going man who murdered his wife and three children. His personal saga was as dramatic as any of the characters he portrayed, and later he admitted to having his own struggles with alcohol and drug addiction in early life. He was born Michael James Gubitosi on September 18, 1933, in in Nutley, New Jersey. Yes, Nutley, New Jersey. His father, an Italian immigrant, and his mother, an Italian American, wanted their three children to succeed in show business. At age two, Blake was performing with his brother and sister in a family vaudeville act called The Three Little Hillbillies. When his parents moved the family to Los Angeles, his mother found work for the kids as movie extras and little Mickey Ghibitosi was plucked from the crowd by producers who cast him in the Our Gang comedies. He appeared in the series for five years and changed his name to Bobby Blake. He went on to work with Hollywood legends playing in young, the young John Garfield and Humoresque in 1946. And the little boy who sells Humphrey Bogart a crucial lottery ticket in the treasure of the Sierra Madre. In adulthood, he landed serious movie roles. The biggest breakthrough was in 1967 with In Cold Blood. Later, there were films including Tell Them Willie Boy Is Here and Electra Glide in Blue. In 1961, Blake and actress Sandra Kerr married and had two children, Noah and Delina. They divorced in 1983. His fateful meeting with Bakley came in 1999 at a jazz club where he went to escape loneliness. Here I was, 67 or 68 years old. My life was on hold. My career was stalled out. He said in the AP interview, "I'd been alone for a long time." He said he had no reason to dislike Bakley. She took me out of the stands and put me back in the arena. I had something to live for. When Bakeley gave birth to a girl, she named Christian Brando, son of Marlon, as the father. But DNA tests pointed to Blake. Blake first saw the little girl named Rosie when she was two months old and she became the focus of his life. He married Bakley because of the child. Rosie is my blood. Rosie is calling to me, he said. I have no doubt that Rosie and I are going to walk off into the sunset together. Prosecutors would claim that he planned to kill Bakley to get sole custody of the baby and tried to hire Hitman for the job, but evidence was muddled and a jury rejected that theory. On her last night alive, Blake and his 44-year-old wife dined at a neighborhood restaurant, Vitello's. He claimed she was shot when he left her in the car and returned to the restaurant to retrieve a handgun he had inadvertently left behind. Police were initially baffled, and Blake was not arrested until a year after the crime occurred. Once a wealthy man, he spent millions on his defense and wound up living on Social Security in a Screen Actors Guild pension. In a 2006 interview with the AP a year after his acquittal, Blake said he hoped to restart his career. That's a bummer. Oh, sad story there, but, uh, well, Hollywood's full of them. It's just, ugh. All right, moving on now to the sports section, because we are uh, running tight. Running tight on the time. Lions claim first crown. Big fourth quarter propels Central Lion past Western Christian in the Class 2A title game. This is by Dave Driesen, Dateline Des Moines. Central Lions' Big Three combined for 63 points as the Lions capture the school's first state championship in boys' basketball on Friday. Breaking open a tight game late, the top-ranked Lions outdistanced Western Christian 72-59 in an all-Northwest Iowa Class 2A final at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. Zach Luttmer scored a game-high 25 points, Reese Vander Zee added 21 points, and Andrew Austin chipped in with 18. The trio, the Lions' three top scorers, each landed spots on the Class 2A All-Tournament team, with Austin selected as the team captain. The win gave Central Lions state championships in boys' basketball and football in the same school year, the first Iowa school to do so since 2006. Central Lions shares a football program with neighboring George Little Rock. Lutmer, who starred on the football team as a quarterback and defensive back, earned first team All State basketball honors last season. In the decisive fourth quarter Friday, Lutmer scored nine points as the six foot one inch senior guard penetrated the lane for jumpers and layups and also hit from outside. As the period began with the Lions ahead by six, Central Lion head coach Ben Gerleman called a set play for Lutmer who rubbed off a screen to get open, took a pass from Reese Vander Z, and then drained a shot from behind the three-point arch, increasing the Lions' lead to 53-44. They came out in a zone, and we ran a play that we literally put in the first day of practice. We really hadn't run it all year, Girlman said. We executed it, got the ball where it needed to go on time, kicked it out, and he just drilled it. It was perfect execution by everyone that might have been the biggest shot of the game because going from 6 to a 9 point lead there's a lot more pressure on them scoring drought less than 3 minutes later after a Lutmer fast break layup and Vanderzee lay in the margin grew to 13 the buckets capped a 13 to 0 run by Central Lion as the Lions held Western Christian scoreless for over 5 minutes in the first half we didn't get back on defense very well Vanderzee said We had to stop the transition buckets. Once we got back, we could get our defense set. They had a hard time scoring. We have athletes all around the court, and that showed defensively. Tate Van Regenmorder, who led Western Christian with 19 points, gave credit to Central Lion defenders for taking his teams out of what we normally do. I thought we weren't ourselves today, and we paid the price for it, he said. After a timeout, Western Christian broke the scoring drought on Tate Van Riggenmorder's three-point shot with four minutes and 47 seconds to play, cutting the lead to 59-49 with four minutes and 15 seconds to play. Less than a minute later, Van Riggenmorder's traditional three-point play trimmed the margin to seven at 59-52. But the Lions answered with four straight points on a Vander Z drive in layup and a Lutmer bucket after he rebounded his own missed shot. That extended the lead to sixty three to fifty two with two minutes and fifty five seconds left. With the Wolfpack forced to foul, Austin nailed four straight free throws and Lutmer hit a pair of charity shots down the stretch to seal the win. Tate Van Regan Mortar single handedly tried to keep the Wolfpack in the game late, scoring ten of the team's fourth quarter points. The six foot three inch senior, who has committed to play basketball at Morningside next fall, scored 19 points on 7 of 15 shooting, including 2 of 6 from beyond the arch. His younger brother, Caden, added 10 points. The brothers, who combined for 41 points in the 79-61 victory over Roland Story in the semifinals, were both named to the all-tournament team. Luttmer credited his fellow all-tournament team honorees, Austin and Vander Zee, for coming through with big games on a big stage. Andrew, he scores a lot inside. I can drive and throw it up to him. I know he's going to get it, and that's the same thing with Reese. When we're on the fast break, I just throw it and let him go get it, Lutmer said. They're both big guys and super athletic. They're some of the most athletic people I've ever played with, and I'm going to college football next year to play Division I football. So that's something, added Lutmer, who was signed to play football for the Iowa Hawkeyes next fall. All-Northwest Iowa Final. Though the two high schools are separated by less than 30 miles, Central Lion and Western Christian did not face each other during the regular season. The last time the two teams met, the Wolfpack eliminated the Lions in the district finals in 2021. The same year, Western Christian won the Class 2A title versus rival Boyden Hall. Last year, Central Lion advanced to the state finals, but lost to one of their rivals, Rock Valley, in the title game. The sting of that defeat was a powerful motivator for this year's Lions team, with most of their key contributors returning. In the locker room at halftime Friday, Austin used the experience as a rallying cry. I told the team, we're going to win, we will win, he said. I had to get that in their heads. Tight first half. The two teams traded blows in a first half that featured a half dozen lead changes and ties, as neither squad led by more than seven. Central Lion jumped out early, 7-4 on a followaway away jumper by Austin. The Wolfpack grabbed their first lead on a three-pointer by Tate Van Regenmorter two minutes later. Lutmer then scored five straight points on a post-up basket in the lane and a three-pointer to put the Lions up 16-11 with 55 seconds left. Chandler Paloma's driving shot as the horn sounded banked off the glass and in, cutting the deficit to 16-13 at the end of the period. Western Christian took a seven-point lead with just over two minutes left in the half, but the Lions tied the score at 32 and half at halftime following a Vander Z3 pointer, two free throws from Lutmer, and an Austin lay-in after the, an, an offensive rebound. I was disappointed that we got up seven and let them make a run at the end. Western Christian head coach Derek Keezer said, that's probably on me. At halftime, we just thought we've been a really good second-half team this year, and we'd find ways to fight back and be resilient. We just didn't get over the hump. They made a little run on us. I think they made three open threes, and we just felt like we got punched in the face and we didn't respond like we did and have been doing all year. The Wolfpack scored seven of the first ten points of the third quarter, taking a 40-35 to lead on a Caden Van Regenmorter shot in the lane. But the Lions went on a 15-4 to run to end the period. A Josh Albert three-pointer tied the score at 40 with four minutes and five seconds remaining and two free throws by Zupmer and Evander Z, fast, break, layup, put the Lions up 44-40. After two straight baskets by Caden Van Regenmorder tied the score at 44, Ethan Hofert and Elbert hit back-to-back trays to give the Lions their 50-44 lead entering the final quarter. Feeling he hadn't played up to his ability in the Lions' narrow 56-55 victory over Pella Christian in the semifinals Thursday, Zupmer vowed to make amends in Friday's championship game. After the last time, I told myself that I'm not going to let that happen again, Lutmer said. I'm going to be more aggressive. The fourth quarter is where the big players make big-time plays and have big moments, and that's what I tried to do. I tried to be aggressive and get everyone else involved, too. And it shows some photos here, several actually, of uh, them during the game, the Lions, Western Christians, Tate, Van mortar number 33, goes up for a layup against Central Lions. Zach Lutmer, number 14, during the third quarter in the 2A Boys Basketball Championship game Friday. You know what? I should have taken the day off and gone down and watched all that. That would have been a good idea. Just not enough people to run this office here. Anyway, uh, moving on to more sports. Congratulations to the Lions in their victory. Cedar Catholic falls in semis. Top-seeded Freeman cruises past Trojans in Class C2. What is this about? Dateline Lincoln. Lincoln Journal star. Carter Roos, Freeman's leading scorer, picked up his second foul early in the second quarter of the Falcons Class C2 state semifinal against number 5 Cedar Catholic on Friday at the Devaney Sports Center. At the time, Freeman coach Jim McLaughlin didn't feel like players other than Roos were trying to score. A quick conversation with Talon Vitrovsky changed that and sparked intensity from the Falcons' cast. Vitrovsky and Carter Niles combined to score 40 points as Freeman cruised to a 63-45 win over the Trojans. I told Talon to tell Carter Niles that you guys need to step it up, McLaughlin said. I think that the message was well-received. Both of those guys I thought were really tremendous the last 30 minutes of the game. Sometimes in these games, you have to win when things don't go well, and I thought our kids always responded after every little bit of adversity we had. Petrovsky found his scoring groove late in the first quarter. He found his way for a layup and then was fouled shooting a three-pointer and knocked down two free throws. Then in the second quarter, when Freeman built up a double-digit lead, he scored six of the team's final eight points before halftime with Roos on the bench. When Carter went out, we huddled up and we said we have to keep attacking. Petrovsky said, I think we really did that. McLaughlin said one of the keys to the win was not turning the ball over against Cedar Catholic, which plays tough defense and can run in transition. We talked to the guys about taking care of the ball and being strong with it, he said. I thought we did a good job of not letting them get out in transition. Freeman advances to its first state championship game since 2015. This group has been to state but hadn't yet made it over the hump. But Saturday is an opportunity for that to finally happen. There is an expectation that we want to win a championship, and we are not just satisfied getting there, McLaughlin said. I know they are still hungry, and they want more. All right, so that's a story out of Nebraska. And uh, that pretty much does it for uh, a lot of the local sports. It's odd to think about, but uh, we're kind of in the uh, dead spot now because there's just not that much going on until after spring break. you will be track and soccer and uh, baseball is coming up. All those wonderful sports, spring sports, are um, fantastic. So that's on the way. Why don't we talk here in the time that we have... A national story, Michaela Schifrin gets her record 86 World Cup victory. Dateline, RA Sweden, way across the pond. Moments after winning her record-tying 86 World Cup race, Michaela Schifrin was asked by a Swedish broadcaster to directly address Ingmar Stenmark, the skiing standout who had promised to watch at home on television. From one grade to another, the 27-year-old American spoke to the 66-year-old Swede of her respect for him and the historic mark that he set in 1989 that was long thought to be beyond reach. No matter what I do, it doesn't even compare to what you achieved, Schifrin said in the TV6 camera from the Lakeside Resort. Maybe I get the 87th victory, but maybe not. But for me, the biggest dream is to be mentioned in the same sentence as you. Schifrin matched the Swedes' mark by winning a giant slalom on Friday. She can break the record on Saturday in a slalom race. Those are her specialties, just as they were for Stenmark in the 1970s and 80s. The reverence between the two goes both ways. Stenmark told the Associated Press in an interview last month that Schifrin is much better than I was. She was certainly good Friday, especially in a standout first run that was the platform for yet another dominating win in her storied career. Her time in the morning sunshine was more than one second faster than her highest-ranked rivals and eventually left her with a lead of .58 seconds to defend in second run. Clearly pleased with her skiing in the opening run, Schifrin smiled and said yeah to herself after seeing her time in the finish area. It's one of the few runs in my life where, while I was skiing, it was I was thinking, this is good, Schifrin told TV6. Schifrin went out more cautiously under the floodlights in the fast, darkening afternoon, tapping her ski poles together four times in the start hut before setting out with a 1.04 seconds and handover then-leader Frederica Brigdan. This lead was cut to .57 seconds midway down the slope before Schifrin skied cleanly in sections where Brignone's aggressive pushing had led to mistakes. The winning margin was .64 seconds. Schifrin crossed the finish line and put her hands to her helmet, then to her face and shook her head slowly while taking in the enormity of her achievement. This is just a spectacular day. Oh my goodness, she said in a coarse side interview. It was Schifrin's fourth straight wire-to-wire win in World Cup giant slalom since January. In that time, she also took gold in the event at last month's World Championships in Maribel, France. When I was little, I would never have believed someday I would be in this position, Schifrin later told Swiss broadcaster SRF. The whole day, I was trying not to focus on that. Schifrin's 86th victory came in her 245th World Cup race and on the fifth attempt to equal Stenmark's record since she won her 85th race in January. It's been on my mind. It's been quite tough to focus the last few weeks, said Schifrin, who hugged her mother and coach Eileen in the Finnish area. Brignone, or Brignoni, however you say that, made a theatrical bow toward Schifrin in the finish area ceremony. The podium included Olympic champion Sarah Hector of Sweden, who finished .92 seconds behind in third. Schifrin also clinched the season-long World Cup giant slalom title to secure her 15th career Crystal Globe trophy. She already won her fifth overall World Cup title and the slalom title this season. Making even more World Cup history Friday, Schifrin's 20th career victory in the giant slalom, six of them this season, matched the all-time women's mark held by Vreni Schneider. Schneider got her wins between 1984 and 1992. The Swiss racer, like Schifrin, also has Olympic and World Championship gold medals in both giant slalom and slalom. Schifrin won her first World Cup race in RA a slalom, I hope I'm saying that right, S-L-A-L-O-M, slalom, in December 2012, and then earned two gold medals at the 2019 Worlds at the Swedish Resort. It was also where she was due to race again in March of 2020, after the death of her father the previous month. But the races were called off because of the coronavirus pandemic. I've had quite a few different experiences here, Schifrin said after her first run on Friday. I have felt everything you can feel here, so it's special to be back. All right, that's about Michaela Schifrin. And that brings us to the end of this reading of the Sioux City Journal. We don't have time for much else, so we're going to have to slam the lid on things for today, as the late Bob Grant would say. This is Andrew Halp, your reader, reading you the Sioux City Journal for Saturday, March 11th. Thank you so much for sharing your time with Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks for listening, and straight ahead.